If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of John, the 14th chapter. We're going to be looking this morning at the last section of this 14th chapter, verses 25 through 31. Jesus is continuing to teach His disciples in what is called His farewell discourse. He's going to continue on through chapters 15, 16, and 17, covering very important topics of our union with Christ, the continued work of the Spirit, and the continued work of the church. But this morning we pick up in the upper room, Jesus has just told them that He is the only way, truth, and life. And He has promised to send the Spirit to them. Please give attention to the reading of God's Word. Because the Word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The Word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the Word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 14, beginning at verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we ask that you would open it up for us. That by the power of your Holy Spirit, that same Spirit that was promised to us, that same Spirit who would bring to the remembrance of the disciples all that Jesus said, that by His power you would illuminate our minds and that we would see the Lord Jesus Christ. This we pray in Christ's precious name. Amen. One of the great commonalities among people is the desire for peace. People look for peace in different places, and they have different definitions of peace. But everyone wants some sense of hope and security. Because of this, there are a multitude of people willing to convince you that they have the peace that you need. 
and often they are willing to sell it to you. But here, Jesus tells us that he has true peace for us. A peace that will calm our hearts and give us hope for the future. And all we need to do is receive it from him. Jesus gives us peace. But more than that, he gives us encouragement to know know we have peace. And he gives us an assurance that his peace will never leave us. And so this morning, I would like us to see these three things. First, we will spend the bulk of our time on the peace that Jesus describes. And then second, we will see the encouragement that Jesus gives to us that we have his peace. And then finally, Jesus will give us assurance that his peace is with us and will never leave us. Peace, encouragement, and assurance. Let's begin then by looking at peace. Jesus talks about this in verse 27. Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The first thing that we would think about is our need for peace. Now, this is so simple and obvious for us to see. After all, we don't like to struggle. We don't like for bad things to happen to us. For some of us, that means we want our health issues to go away. For others, we're tired of financial issues that bear down on us. For those who are younger among us, We want to have now what we are striving for. And for many of us, we are fearful of what is happening in our nation and in the world. We want a sense of relief and satisfaction. And so the world is ready to offer us peace. Think of all the things that if we just buy them, everything will be all right. Everywhere you look, there's an entire industry made up. People become millionaires determining how best to sell you peace. We think of the things we could buy, but we also think of those who tell us if we just adopt a certain lifestyle, all of our problems will go away. There is no shortage of solutions out in the world. For the trouble that is in your heart. But the peace of the world does not satisfy. That's what Jesus tells us. His peace is not the peace that the world gives. The peace of the world is temporary. There is always a need for more and more. Now this should be easy for you to understand. Just think back. To the last item you obtained or purchased that you were sure was going to make your life better. And now think about it probably on the trash heap or replaced by a newer and better version of it or a second newer and better version of it. We think peace is just around the corner. If we just get this certain device, 
if we just get this certain item, if we just have this certain lifestyle, if we just do these certain things. But the truth of it is, if we live long enough, all of these things simply wear themselves out. They fall short. They don't satisfy. They leave us looking for the next best thing. The peace of the world is not only temporary, the peace of the world is insincere. Think about the motives with which the peace of the world is offered to us. Everyone is offering you peace and they are doing it as a way of obtaining something for themselves. Excuse me. You know, you see this in the most interesting of things. One of the things that fascinates me most are the people who write books that say this is the secret way to be a millionaire and have everything you need. And as soon as I look at that, I say to myself, then why are they writing this book? If they know the way, then they should have everything they need. And if they have everything they need, why would they invite competition? Why wouldn't they keep it to themselves? And of course, if you have fallen for that, you realize that in its best case, those sorts of books are simply common sense. Work hard, save, be frugal, etc. There is a, a method, a motivation behind those who are offering that kind of peace. So the world's peace is temporary, it's insincere, but it's also powerless. It can't affect real change. It may make a slight difference for a short period of time. It may make our circumstances easier to bear. But the world never offers lasting change that makes a difference in who we are, in what we think, and in the calm of our hearts. Because after all, what kinds of things does the world offer for peace? So often it offers material satisfaction. Think of every product, every car, every home, every device that says to you, you deserve this. Your life will never be better until you have this. I've told you this before. The greatest bumper sticker lie in the universe is he who dies with the most toys wins. It's verifiably false. And yet the world still tries to sell us peace on that behavior. But there's a second thing that the world offers. It offers achievement. If you just get ahead in your job, if you just get the best of the best grades, if you just are the best athlete, if you just are the best musician, if you just are the best artist, then you'll find meaning and peace and hope. And the thing that all of this revolves around is you using your best efforts to achieve. You know, an athlete is nothing like an artist, but they both have the same goal. They have to reach the pinnacle. They have to climb over everyone else. They have to be the greatest. And when they're the greatest, then all of life's answers will be found. That's another lie from the world. I have a very good friend who had the blessing to be on a baseball team that won the World Series. Now, it doesn't get any better than that, at least not if you're a baseball fan. And the night after they won the World Series, he went up on a bridge 
and intended to throw himself off the bridge to his death. Because he said to himself, if this is as good as it gets, life's not worth living. You see, he didn't have peace. Now, I will tell you that he found the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's now a minister of the gospel and a successful church planner, and now he has real peace. But the world would have him be satisfied with achievement. The world says, well, if you just have wealth and security, if you just have just enough money, if your 401k is just big enough, if your stock portfolio is just full enough, then you'll have peace. Of course, until the next downturn, or the next bout of inflation, or the next disaster that hits you in your possessions or in your health. A fourth way that the world tries to offer us peace is through pleasure. It says, you need to do everything that you want to do. And this could take, again, a broad variety of things. You could try to find peace in a bottle, or in drugs, or in an innumerable company of men or women, or, yes, young people, video games, or toys, or cars. You try to find peace in what you think gives you pleasure. Now, all of these characterize life in America now. We're always seeking after the next best thing. We're never satisfied. We're trying to drown out all of our problems with white noise. Now, you know what white noise is, don't you? White noise is what, when you turn on one of these machines and you turn it up so that you can't hear everything around you. You know, that's especially helpful if you are a parent of a very young child. If you're just very tired and the crying is getting to you, I recommend getting a white noise machine. But, but that doesn't solve the problem, does it? It's kind of like you heard me say this before. Do you know how to fix a problem with your car when your car is making all these clanging and banging noises that you don't know what they mean, but certainly they sound like trouble? You know how you fix that? You turn the radio up. And then you don't hear the noises anymore. You see, that's the kind of peace that the world offers. It's a distraction. So what is real peace? Jesus tells us that the peace he gives is not as the world gives. When the world talks about peace, it refers to the absence of conflict or the absence of problems. Peace is not something real or active. It's an escape from the world. You can see that in the way that we describe the world's peace. It is found in things that distract us from the problems of life. Whether it's money or pleasure or drugs or video games or vacations, they all have one thing in common. They're a distraction. Real peace is a sense of wholeness, harmony, and well-being. Both the Greek word that John uses here and the Hebrew word behind it have that sense. Peace is something that we can have and experience. It's not just the absence of trouble. It is a calm and a hope in the midst of troubles. And this is why Jesus repeats here in verse 27... What he said earlier in verse 1, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He doesn't want his disciples to be troubled. Now, we've seen this word before in John's gospel. It means 
to be disturbed, to be distracted, to be unable to focus because of the pressures around us. And then Jesus says he doesn't want them to be afraid. And this is a unique word. It's actually the only time this word is used in all of the Bible. Now, it will not surprise you to know that the Bible has many words for fear because we are so fearful all the time. This is a unique word. It does not refer to the result of something happening to make you afraid. It refers to a state of being. It is lacking courage. It is being cowardly. So what Jesus is saying, I want you to have peace and to not be afraid, to not be cowardly, to not lack courage. You won't lack courage because you'll have peace. He's telling us not to be driven by what's around us. And of course, Jesus is the perfect example of this. He is speaking to the disciples. We are reading his words as he is facing the cross. And he's taking this occasion to encourage his disciples, to teach them. He's not worried about the cross. He's not allowing it to consume him. He's not allowing it to separate him from the Father. And he knew exactly what was before him. It wasn't that he could minimize what was before him. You know, we know and we see and we think about the physical pain, the beatings, the mockings, all that Jesus endured. And we might have a small sense of what it meant to bear the wrath of God. But I dare say it's beyond our mind's comprehension to think about what it meant to bear the infinite wrath of God for sin. Jesus is not saying here that there will be no storms in life. Too many popular so-called preachers will tell you that. That if you just believe in Jesus, your health will be wonderful. You'll have all the money you need. All of your relationships will be great. And your kids will turn out perfect every time. They're lying. Because Jesus never promised that. As a matter of fact, we've seen in this gospel, not only does Jesus promise that they're not promised there will be no storms, he leads his disciples into storms. He wants us to know that he gives peace in the midst of trials. And the most important aspect of that peace that we need is peace with God. That's because the heart of all of our problems is separation from God. Sin has ruined the world, bringing death, sickness, pain, and evil. You don't need a theological lesson from me to see the results of sin. They are all around you. And everything around you that you see that is wrong, that is evil, that is broken, is a result of sin. From murders to mosquitoes, it is all a result of sin. Sin has caused us to be at war with God. We are never satisfied. We can never find rest. We wander from one thing to the next seeking peace. And Jesus gives us a peace that solves that problem. Notice that it's not just a generic peace that Jesus gives. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Jesus is saying here, 
what the Bible tells us over and over again. That Jesus brings us to God. That he ends the war. That he is the creator of the peace that you need. Paul puts it so well in Romans chapter 5. <coughs> he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, what's the result? We have peace with God. And how do we have that peace with God? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has made that peace. We don't need to be afraid or troubled. Jesus has made the way. He has made peace with God possible. He has resolved the greatest problem the world has ever known. The greatest problem you could ever have. But the good news of the gospel is that it doesn't stop there. When you have peace with God, you then experience the peace of God. Because our fundamental and real problem is being separated from God. And once Jesus has solved that, a real sense of peace follows. Paul writes in that very well-known verse in Philippians chapter 4, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, salvation is not just escaping judgment and hell. It is entering into a new relationship with God. You know God as your father. You have his presence in your life. He is present with you. That's what Jesus has been saying in this chapter about the sending of the Holy Spirit. When you are at peace with God, you are never alone. The Spirit comes to you and he is sent by the Father and the Son and he dwells with you. And a peaceful state of mind is not something you can achieve on your own. It is something that comes to you from God. It is a result of knowing what Jesus has done for you. It is the experience of knowing God through the work of the Spirit in your life. Do you want that kind of peace? Then listen to Jesus. He is the giver of peace. So how can we grab hold of this peace? It seems easy to just say to someone, be at peace. But that's easier said than done. How can we know that this real peace is ours and we're not just falling for another temporary falsehood? Well, Jesus gives us the answer at the outset of this passage in verse 25. He says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. The peace that Jesus gives is real. It is not just a feeling that comes and goes. It is not just the result of good circumstances. It is something Jesus has objectively accomplished for us in his work of salvation. And so Jesus reminds us to listen and think about his words. He says, these things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. Jesus is not asking you to take a leap in the dark. 
We talked about that a few weeks ago. He's not saying, risk everything on me and hope that things get better. He says, I have told you exactly how this peace will come about. We have the words that Jesus teaches us about salvation and what it is and what true peace means. Jesus has taught us that those who believe in him will live. In John 11, verse 25. Jesus teaches us that those who put their faith and trust in him will not remain in darkness, but will be in light. In John 12, verse 26. Jesus tells us that when you believe on him, you will not pass into judgment, but will have eternal life. John 3, 18, 5, 24, 6, 47. I could go on and on and on. The time would fail me. Suffice it to say that in the Gospel of John and beyond into the other Gospels and in Paul's letters and in the Old Testament, Jesus' words come to us that the peace he gives comes because of his work of salvation. And to believe in Jesus means to know the Father and to experience the Holy Spirit. Jesus wants you to know these things. He says in verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. We don't need to be afraid because Jesus has given us great and precious promises. Peter understood this. We're going to see in coming months that Peter betrayed Jesus. He denied him. And then when he was brought back to Jesus and he heard Jesus' words of promise once again, he went out and shared them. In 2 Peter chapter 1, he talks about the great and precious promises we have. Because he'd experienced it. He had the words of Jesus. And that gave him peace. He didn't dwell on his past failures. He wasn't concerned about the future and what life would bring. He trusted in the word of Christ. So when you are afraid or discouraged... And let me tell you, as your pastor, I expect you to be afraid and discouraged. I know I am at times. The Lord knows it. When you're afraid or discouraged, go to your Bible. Because it's Jesus' words to you. Words of comfort, words of encouragement, words of grace. Remember that Jesus has spoken these things to you. Your circumstances will pass away. But Jesus' words will never pass away. And Jesus has further provided for our weakness. Once again, Jesus tells us that he will send the Holy Spirit. Now, we already understand all of the blessings that Jesus has told us will come with the Spirit, that we will know the Father, that the Father and the Son will make their home with us. But now Jesus focuses on something very particular in verse 26. But the Helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. 
Now, at first glance, we may think this only applies to the disciples. Like this is some kind of super flashback. That when they're having trouble, they'll think to themselves, Oh, do you remember the day when Jesus fed the 5,000? That was a really good day, wasn't it? Yeah, you know what I remember? I remember when Peter tried to walk on water. And then he started to sink, and then Jesus got him. No, 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 I remember the lame man. What a good day that was. And we think about it like we would think about our own life, because we can picture that. We do that with the happy times in our lives, don't we? We think back on them when we're in hard times. We'll even pull out pictures of those happier days to try to remind us of them. But I don't think that's what Jesus means here. I think what he's referring to is the Spirit's work in helping the disciples understand and transmit his teaching. I've said this before, but it bears repeating. The Holy Spirit does not bring any new teaching. He brings the words of Jesus to us. And how does he do that? Well, through his Bible. Jesus is telling them that whatever they do not understand now, they will later by the Spirit. And they will write that down for all of Jesus' followers, including you and me. What an encouragement. We see this throughout John's Gospel. John gives us clues in John 13. Jesus says, what I am doing now, you do not understand. But afterward, you will understand. When he was washing their feet. And they didn't know what was going on. But then Jesus, through his spirit, brought them to an understanding. And John recorded it so we would know. You remember back in John chapter 2, Jesus says, Destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. And John says, you know, we had no idea what he was talking about. We couldn't understand it. But then after the resurrection, then we understood. And he tells us that. So we understand. So be encouraged. Not only has Jesus given you his peace, he's told you what that means. And he sent his spirit to press that truth on your heart. Well, lastly... One of the most challenging things about peace is fearing that it will go away. And that's where we need assurance. You see, for many of us, we are living in a time of unprecedented peace. Now, when I say that, I know there are some of you that are saying, Pastor, have you read the news lately? (coughs) Have you seen what's going on in the Ukraine? Have you seen what's going on in Asia and in Africa and all of the wars and rumors of wars and rebellions? Yes, I have. But I do know that I have never lived through World War I or World War II. If you want to see what real war and destruction looks like, when you go home, search online for pictures of cities in 1945 and today. See what Hiroshima and Nagasaki and Berlin and London looked like in 1945. And then see what they look like today. 
You see, we don't have a frame of reference for that kind of devastation. The closest I think we can get is probably 9-11, in which one small portion of one of our cities was destroyed. And it was horrific. And it is scarred on the psyches of so many of us. Now imagine all of New York City being obliterated. And all of Pittsburgh, and all of Cleveland, and all of Detroit, and all of Boston. Now see, when we think about that, we cannot help but be distracted from peace itself. Because we're worried about the future. And so Jesus understood this. He wants you to have assurance. And so if you are not to be troubled, you need assurance about the future. It's not enough to know you have peace now. You want to know that you will always have this peace. So how can we have this sense of assurance? Again, Jesus points us away from ourselves and our circumstances to himself. He tells us that our peace is grounded in his finished work. He's told us about his work of reconciliation and forgiveness, but now he emphasizes for us that it is finished and perfect. And we see this in verse 28. You have heard me say, I am going away. And I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Now, this is an odd verse. It's difficult to understand. And we are thrown off by the language, if you loved me, then you would do this. And we're wondering, don't the disciples love him? Why is Jesus being so hard? And Jesus says, the Father is greater than I am. And we think to ourselves, didn't Jesus just tell us that he and the Father are one? Don't let that distract you. Jesus is saying, if you truly understood and loved me, you would know that in my work as the Messiah, as the God-man, I am submitting to the Father. And in the economy of salvation, in this work, I am less than he is. I am obeying the will of the Father. But that doesn't mean that the Son of God is eternally less than the Father. And he says, I'm going away, and I'm going to the Father. And when I do that, I will be going back to the glory that I once had. And he says, if you really understood that, you would rejoice. You would rejoice because I am going back to the glory I had, and you would know that my work is finished and secure. That's what he's saying. He's telling them they should rejoice that he's going away. Their temptation is to be sad as they look at their own needs and their own circumstances. They want Jesus to say, but the truth is that Jesus leaving them is a sign that everything has been accomplished, that the work is done, that peace is won. Jesus' final words in this passage are also an assurance for us. He says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Jesus is telling them that his time is short. That the enemy is coming. And that's what will come to pass. Now right now, Judas is betraying. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are scheming. Pilate is going to be wavering, but Satan is behind it all. Satan fancies himself the ruler of the world. And in a sense, temporarily he is. 
Because sin and injustice consume the world and he rules in the hearts of wicked men and women. But reality is about to set in. Peace is about to come about because Jesus wins the victory. The cross appears to be the greatest triumph of Satan. But Jesus is saying, don't you see it that way? He thinks he's the ruler of the world. He thinks he's one. But I go to the cross to obey the Father. I go willingly. And the Father has designed it. And that cruel instrument, that horrible death, is the greatest thing that has ever happened in the universe. As God reconciles sinners to himself. There should be no doubt in your mind about the peace that Jesus gives because there is no doubt about his victory. The enemy has no claim on Jesus, he says in verse 30. And it's a very interesting way. In Greek, you can do something that you can't do in English. You can have a double negative. If I were to say to you, I don't got nothing, and you got past that kind of odd grammar, you would say, well, Fred has something. That's not how it works in Greek. It's a double down. It's no way, no how, no means. There's no way in which Satan has anything on me. There's no chink in Jesus' armor. There's no sin that Satan can hold on to. There's no possibility. There's no world in an infinite number of worlds with an infinite number of possibilities in infinite worlds that Satan would ever have anything on the Savior. It's impossible. We need to view our circumstances the same way Jesus wants us to view the cross. It may appear that all is lost. That Satan is winning. That we will never see peace and victory. But remember, for those who love God, all things work together for good. That does not mean you'll have your best life now. That does not mean everything will be perfect and everything will be rosy. What it means is God has the end in mind. And your end, believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, is communion with God for all eternity and the peace that flows from that. God is in control. Jesus wants you to know his peace. He's told you that when you believe on him, your sins are forgiven and your debts are paid. You have new eternal life. You have hope that can never be taken away from you. And you can know peace. True peace. A peace that will never pass away. Because it comes from the Savior. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. When you know that, you will hear Jesus' words at the end of this passage. Rise, let us go from here, and obey with great joy. Let's pray.